This evening's talk is uh, about the seamless circle of the parami of generosity. And we'll begin with uh, just a brief discussion about the paramis. So, what is a parami? Paramis are described as the accumulated forces of purity within the heart, within the mind. Every mind moment that's clear, that's free of greed, uh, free of hatred, free of delusion, has a certain purifying force in the ongoing flow of consciousness. And each of us in our long evolutionary process has accumulated many of these forces of purity within our own heart and mind. One of the roots of the Pali word, parami, conveys the sense of supreme quality. Paramita, the Sanskrit word, is translated as going forward, going toward something. So going toward supreme quality, going toward perfection. In the Theravada tradition, there are ten paramis to be developed, and I'll just list them both in English and in Pali. The first is generosity, which is dana in Pali. The second is virtue or ethical behavior, sila. The third, renunciation, nekama. The fourth is wisdom, panya. Energy or effort, virya. Patience, kanti. Truthfulness, saka. Resolve or determination, aditana. Loving kindness, metta. Equanimity, upeka. As each of these qualities grow and strengthen and mature within us, the accumulation of the qualities of non-greed, which are generosity and renunciation and patience, the accumulation of the qualities of non-hatred, which are loving-kindness, truthfulness, and virtue, and the accumulation of the qualities of wisdom, which are energy, effort, resolve, and equanimity. As each of these qualities grow and strengthen in us, they become actually very powerful, forceful, very powerful and forceful. And they result in many forms of happiness and contentment and a sense of well-being in relationship to the most basic worldly sensual pleasures all the way through to the highest, most refined happiness of the awakened, the liberated heart and mind. The development and the growth 
of these perfections. That's another word that's often used to trans is translated from parami perfections. The growth and the maturation of these perfections, these forces, we could say, of heart and mind, help to counter the forces that cause us human beings such great suffering. Everything occurs, everything happens because of particular causes and conditions. Nothing occurs randomly or accidentally. The practices that lead towards developing these qualities in our lives and in our heart and our mind really aren't to be undervalued or thought of as not really so important. Some people have said, oh, they're not the real practice. They are the real practice. This aspect of the training of the mind, the training of the heart, is really an essential, powerful, and necessary aspect of our practice of moving towards liberation. As these qualities grow and deepen and get more and more refined, they're incredibly powerful causes of all spiritual accomplishment. It's said that the ultimate perfection of the paramis is the perfection of all of the qualities of mind and heart of a Buddha. The nature of these paramis can be understood as being of two basic aspects. The first being the paramis that are related to the purity of conduct or the purity of action, our way of being in the world. So conduct in its everyday worldly aspects. And these paramis are generosity and virtue, renunciation, effort, energy in relationship to meditation practice, truthfulness, and and resolve, in this case meaning resolve to practice. The second aspect of the paramis is related to the purity of wisdom, of understanding, of insight, both in relationship to everyday worldly life and the wisdom, the understanding, the insight of the very deepest liberating kind. The second aspect of the paramis is panya, wisdom, patience, loving-kindness, and equanimity. And of course, all of the paramis are totally interrelated, and so they bring each other to light over and over and over again. Our practice in itself, in this process we're involved in, is the practice and the process of purification. The path of practice that leads us toward liberation. Samatha, concentration. Vipassana, insight. And all the other specific practices such as the Brahma-vihara practices. Metta, loving-kindness. Karuna, compassion. Mudita, appreciative joy. 
equanimity, upekka. It's all, these are all aspects of the path of purification. The development of the paramis organically or naturally occur within the context of all of these practices. In light of the fact that you will pretty soon be moving from an intensive retreat setting out into the larger world, and considering our everyday life here in this intensive retreat setting, bringing the paramis more and more in the forefront or into the forefront of our daily life can be very helpful, very helpful and very fruitful. It can be really a potent aspect of our practice. The paramis, of course, are to be practiced and developed for one's own liberation but also very much so for the benefit of the family, benefit of one's friends, one's community, and for the benefit of the world. One aspect of the blossoming and potential perfection uh, of these qualities of mind and heart is that there's something to work towards, to practice towards benefiting others with no self-interest. The mind, the heart, liberated from all self-centered concern, so no greed, no hatred, no delusion, which, of course, without a doubt, is a great benefit for everyone. Our self, oneself very much included. And as we move toward this, little by little, through our practice, that's what we're doing, in a sense. As we practice the Dhamma to gain liberation, it's actually quite okay and actually necessary to have self-interest. This is a wholesome self-interest. In pursuing the Dhamma this way, as I think everyone here basically understands, there's no harm done in relationship to others. Traditionally, the practice, the development, and the gaining of the paramis is called the work or the affair of a noble one, a noble person. So this evening, we'll look uh, more deeply into the parami of generosity, exploring the giving and the receiving that's inherent in this beautiful and essential quality of heart and mind. And beginning with a story. A number of years ago now, when I was living at the Insight Meditation Society as the resident teacher for staff, at times I would go 
to the Cambodian Peace Pagoda Temple, which uh, isn't very far from the Insight Meditation Society. And I go there to pay a visit to my friend, the Venerable Mahagosananda. And some of you may know of him. Maybe some of you have met him. His name uh, translates as Maha, Great, and Gosananda, the sound of bliss. Maha, as he was quite fondly called, uh, was from Cambodia. And he's considered the patriarch of Cambodian Buddhism. He's probably best known for the Dhamma Yatras, the long step-by-step walks for peace that he led through the Cambodian countryside and the villages and the refugee camps uh, during and just after the Vietnam War. Maha died uh, some years ago at approximately the age of 94. He'd been a monk for 80 years. Venerable Gosananda was an incredibly glowing and energetically light human being. He felt like one of the purest and lightest beings that I'd ever encountered. He was so simple, so unpretentious, so rare. A being with a really truly unfettered mind and a pure heart. A few years before Maha's passing, I had the great honor and joy of teaching a three-day retreat with him up in Crestone, Colorado. And during that time, a sweet and deep connection came to pass between us. The evening before the retreat was to begin, I was taken into his quarters to say hello. We actually didn't know each other very well, and we hadn't seen each other for over a year. So I I didn't know if he'd remember me. Being such an old man, uh, there were uh, a number of things that he didn't remember. So I recalled to him the last time that we had met, and I asked him if he remembered me. And his response was this. He said, oh, yes, I remember your nose. (laughs) And just as we are tonight, I burst out laughing. (laughs) And I said, wow, it must be quite a nose. (laughs) And then he looked at me in his very beautiful way, and he said, very directly and sweetly, it's a good nose. During a three-month retreat that I was teaching at the Insight Meditation Society, not very long after this Colorado retreat that I uh, taught with Venerable Gosananda, I visited uh, Venerable Gosananda at the Cambodian uh, Peace Pagoda. I felt like I was going to see my my Dhamma grandfather, who actually used to call me Mum. And at one point during that visit, I asked him why he called me Mum, when in fact he was so much older than me. And his response was, we have all been each other's mother at some point, so you're Mum. So that day, Mum and Grandfather sat in this little kind of 
kitcheny area there. We drank tea together. We laughed a little bit. We talked some history about his life. Talked about the three-month retreat that I was teaching and how everyone was so diligently practicing. Mostly, though, we talked <clears throat> Buddha Dhamma, which was Venerable's favorite topic. Being with Venerable Gosananda was always a most precious gift that opened and lightened the heart, opened and lightened the mind. A gift he totally selflessly offered simply through his being. Or maybe more accurately, a gift that he offered in just simply being. And I found it quite amazing and surprising whenever I was with him and afterwards as well. My heart felt like it filled up my whole body, my whole being, and then on outward, an experience that would always continue on for some time beyond our time together. That day when I left the Cambodian temple, to my total surprise, the two monks and one of the nuns that lived there with Maha filled the back of my car with large bags of Thai rice and big tins of jasmine tea and sacks of sugar to take back for all of the three-month yogis. They wanted to offer gifts of support because they were just so happy that people were practicing the Dhamma. And of course, one of the most profound acts of generosity that occurred over 2,500 years ago when Gautama Buddha, directly out of his own experience, offered the teachings and the practices of liberation from suffering. It's because of the Buddha's mind and heart of boundless generosity and great compassion that we're sitting here together this evening. And so, moving from a pretty recent story regarding the Venerable Mahagosananda to an old story, <clears throat> an ancient, ancient Buddhist, Buddhist legend, a tale that displays quite a number of paramis, uh, and in particular, generosity and virtue, renunciation, wisdom, effort, energy, and resolve. And this particular telling of this story is adapted from the tale as told by the storyteller Rafe Martin. It's said that many Maha Kulpas and world cycles ago, before our Buddha, Gautama Buddha, came to be, another Buddha, Dipankara Buddha, was about to pay a visit to a small village the small village of Amaravati in India. And he was to offer an evening of public talks, revealing the Dhamma. Well, the villagers were very, very excited and felt very deeply honored to show their great respect for Buddha Dipankara. They decided to level out the whole length of the road that the Buddha would walk on through their village and then cover it with fine cloth. 
in the forest just outside of this village of Amaravati lived a young man who was blessed with much goodness, physical beauty, intelligence, friendliness, kindness, and great virtue and vigor. He was the hermit Sumedha, who in a much earlier time, or in a much later time, was to be the future Buddha, our Buddha. Sumedha's parents were wealthy Brahmins, and they had died just a few years before, and they left him with seven generations of accumulated property and great wealth. It's said that young uh, Sumedha thought, well, my family has amassed much wealth, yet neither my parents nor any of my ancestors were able to take any of it with them upon leaving this world. What's the point of amassing more? One day I too will die. As there's a road that leads beyond suffering in this world, should I remain idle? No. I will leave this sheltered life and become an ascetic and find the way. So he announced his intention to the king and he gave all of his money to the poor and he entered into the forest life of a hermit, eating wild fruit and wearing clothes of bark and letting his hair grow long and matted. He practiced energetically, whether walking or standing or sitting or lying down. Within a short time, he gained a profound insight into the true nature of things and bore a very bright wisdom that was never to be dimmed. He sat for many days, blissfully absorbed in his newly found sense of freedom and understanding. On the day of Dipankara Buddha's visit to the village, Sumedha was roused out of his deep meditation by all of the excitement and all of the activity in town. It's said that, seated cross-legged, he rose up into the air and flew through the forest until he came to the road. What's all the excitement? Why are you working in the midday heat? Why is the road being leveled and covered with golden cloth? Venerable Sumedha, replied the workman, don't you know the Buddha Dipankara is approaching the village? Well, Sumedha's heart leapt with joy. A Buddha, he thought. Rare is it even to hear the word Buddha. Rare beyond all comprehending is it to meet such a fully realized one. So he immediately came down from his airy perch (laughs) and offered to help the workmen with the road, picking a particularly swampy patch uh, of low ground to fill. And he worked with his heart and his mind, filled with light and filled with joy, and kept repeating over and over to himself, a Buddha, a Buddha. But before he was able to finish his task, he heard exquisite music and chanting and saw flowers being tossed in the air. The Buddha, Dipankara, was approaching. It's said that Sumedha saw multi-hued rays of light extending from the Buddha Dipankara, and a great soft golden light surrounding him. 
And then he thought, here's one who's attained all wisdom. Here's one free from all greed, all anger, all ego delusion. One in whom all goodness has been realized. I shall make an offering to the Buddha, to Pankara, in honor of all that he is. So, Sumedha spread his bark cloth cape over the soft, wet ground. And then he lay down on top of it. And he loosened and spread his long, matted hair. He made a passage of himself for the Buddha Dapankara to walk on over the mud. And then he thought, like the Buddha Dapankara, I want to help all beings. I am determined. Despite all the difficulties, all the danger, I'll never turn back. I am resolved to attain what the Buddha Dapankara has attained and benefit all beings. The next moment, the Buddha Dapankara arrived right at that spot. And looking down at Sumedha, he knew, this hermit has made the resolve to be a Buddha. He will be successful. And in many mahakalpas and world cycles from now, he will become a fully realized one, an awakened one, a Buddha, and his name will be Gautama. And out loud, surrounded by hundreds of people, monks, nuns, laywomen, men, and children, the Buddha Dipankara stated, in many mahakalpas and world cycles from now, this hermit lying here will fulfill his great vow. He will be a Buddha named Gautama, When he becomes a young man, he will see the four signs, old age, sickness, death, and a monk, and he will leave his ordinary life in search of the deepest truths. After great exertions and near death, he will receive a life-saving meal of milk rice. Then, with renewed strength and energy, he will go to the foot of a bow tree, sit himself down, and continuing his effort, With great diligence, he will attain supreme Buddhahood. Well, as you can imagine, Sumedha, lying there in the mud, (laughs) became delirious with joy. My deepest wish shall be attained. I shall be a Buddha, he thought. The next moment, the hermit Sumedha then put his palms together honoring the Buddha Dipankara, who did the same in return to the Bodhisatta. And then, continuing on his way through the village, accompanied by hundreds of followers, the Buddha went on, going on his way to offer the Dhamma. The Bodhisatta Sumedha arose from his bed of compassionate generosity. And he was filled with joy and strength of purpose. It's said that he rose up into the air and returned to his forest retreat, where he remained practicing hard towards his goal. We usually think of generosity as the practice of offering. 
but in its fullness, it's really both offering and receiving. A process which very clearly helps to purify and transform the contraction of separateness engendered by self-centeredness. The development and the deepening of this heart quality of generosity directly inspires and feeds the purification and transformation of greed and clinging, stinginess, hoarding, and saving. The development and deepening of generosity directly inspires and feeds the purification and the transformation of the fear and the attachment that are so closely linked to the energies of greed and resistance. Generosity, a perfectly natural aspect of our humanness and universally recognized as one of the most basic human virtues. We offer. We give help. We receive this seamless service. Just as the Bodhisattva Sumedha so diligently and deeply practiced and cultivated and manifested compassionate generosity, we also cultivate and manifest it in a thousand different ways, no matter our culture, our age, no matter who we are. I'm weeding and planting my garden early one summer morning many years ago. My four-and-a-half-year-old son wanders over to my work area and with a big, very bright smile on his face thrusts a bunch of yellow dandelions at me. And I receive them with delight and heartfelt gratitude. I happen to be in China during my 46th birthday. And the friend that I was traveling with and I were staying in Shanghai in a two-room apartment with a Chinese family who were good friends of my friend. The 20-year-old daughter of the family had admired my favorite bracelet that I was wearing. I learned that in China the custom is to give gifts on one's birthday. So in the midst of experiencing some degree, a fair amount uh, actually, of clinging and attachment, I decided to give my favorite bracelet to this young woman for my birthday. Though, actually, I felt kind of like a one-handed giver during my consideration about doing this. And then finally decided to do it. And when it came time to actually give her this gift, It was with both hands and with an open heart. It was actually truly a joy at that point, though the process of getting there was very, very much a practice of generosity for me. A friend waited some years for all of the conditions to come together, for her to sit a 
the three-month retreat at the Insight Meditation Society. And so finally, one year, all the conditions do come together. But a week before the retreat begins, was to begin, she calls me to tell me that she's given up her spot because a very dear friend who was dying of cancer had asked her if she might consider being her caretaker. A young cab driver in Thailand and I have a very inspiring conversation about Buddhism. And just as I'm getting out of his taxi, he takes the small bronze statue of his beloved teacher off the dashboard of his car and hands it to me, gives it to me. And I hesitate momentarily, not sure how to or even if I can receive this gift. And then my heart just relaxes and simply opens, and it's easy to accept this purity of generosity. A three-year-old Native American child from the Iroquois tribe sits in the middle of a circle surrounded by many blood relatives and extended family members. There are delicious foods and beautiful clothing and blankets close to the child in the center of the circle. After eating and drinking her fill and exploring the clothes and the blankets, a voice is heard from outside the circle. I'm hungry. Another voice. I'm thirsty. Another voice. I'm cold. And the child is led out of the circle to share food and drink with the hungry and the thirsty and to share blankets with the cold one. A ceremony, a training of the heart towards compassionate generosity. A number of years ago now, forest fires raged in the Los Alamos and Española area here in New Mexico. Hundreds of individuals and families were evacuated from their homes. And almost immediately, there was an enormous outpouring of generosity coming from miles around. Clothing and food, all of the ordinary daily life needs, as well as offers of housing. So much offered freely that at some point we were told that it was time to stop giving, that the needs of all those suffering because of the fires had been met with great abundance. At some point along the way of your life, along the way of your practice, you decided that you wanted to sit this retreat. And all of the conditions come together. And so you both give the gift of this precious time to yourself and receive the fruits of your practice and the teachings day by day as the retreat unfolds. Maybe at times during this retreat you're moving 
ever so slowly. And you don't feel pushed. You don't feel hurried by anyone to speed up. Another gift given and received. Just for a moment, imagine yourself standing outside your home each morning holding a large bowl of food. A line of saffron-robed monks and nuns are moving slowly, gracefully down the road, each of them holding a round begging bowl. As they pass in front of you, you scoop out a portion of the food from your bowl and put it into each of the monks and nuns' bowls. Imagine yourself as a child standing with your mother or father or older sister or brother and seeing this ritual, seeing this offering every morning, taking in the power of the generous heart so clearly present in this daily practice, taking in the joy and genuine happiness that's quite apparent in this purity of giving. The benefits of generosity learned each day, they just simply become a natural part of your life. And from the Buddha, if beings knew as I know the results of sharing gifts, they would not enjoy their lives without sharing them with others, nor would the taint of stinginess obsess the heart and stay there. Even if it was their last and final bit of food, they would not enjoy its use without sharing it, if there was anyone to receive it. The Buddha and his nuns and monks all lived in the same simple way, making alms rounds each day for their sustenance. The Buddha taught and lived what is really a way of life. And in speaking to his Sangha, he said, Thus you must train yourselves. We will be thankful and grateful. Not even the least thing that is done for us shall be forgotten. Giving and receiving. Generosity, a practice of the heart. Most of us here in this Western world don't have this kind of daily experience, this reminder, the monastic training of the begging bowl isn't so easily available in this country. It is available, but not so easily available, which, at least in part, is the training, the cultivation of renunciation and gratitude and the understanding of interdependence that's very directly related to the process of simply receiving what is offered in support of a way of life. 
And mostly in this culture, we don't regularly engage from the other side either in offering food each day to those who depend on it for their sustenance. And through this process, reap the wholesome benefits of cultivating a light, joyous, and generous heart. And I have to say, in a certain sense, to the contrary, this retreat has been really quite wonderful and special with so many meals generously offered as dana. But for the most part, our Western culture doesn't encourage us this way. Our Western culture encourages us to yearn for, thirst for, to acquire and to accumulate. And then to fixate and cling to our accumulations, material accumulations and the accumulations of ideas and opinions and views that support this whole materialistic culture. And then in turn, we're deeply conditioned by this process to identify ourselves outwardly and inwardly through all of our accumulations to think, feel, and project that this is who we are. In light of this pretty pervasive and pretty sticky conditioning, I think it takes a certain kind of courage to enter into a spiritual path that encourages us towards seeing and knowing the truth of ourselves, the truth of all things underneath and beyond all of this training, beyond all of this conditioning of attachment and clinging and identification. In a poem from Naomi Shihab Nye, she wrote this poem in Colombia when she was in Colombia in 1978. It's called Kindness. Before you know what kindness really is, you must lose everything. Feel the past and the future dissolve in a moment like salt in a weakened broth. What you held in your hand, what you counted and carefully saved, all this must go so you know how desolate the landscape can be between the regions of kindness. How you ride and ride thinking the bus will never stop. The passengers eating maize and chicken will stare out the window forever. Before you learn the tender gravity of kindness, you must travel where the Indian in a white poncho lies dead by the side of the road. You must see how this could be you. How he too was someone who journeyed through the night with plans and the simple breath that kept him alive. Before you know kindness as the deepest thing inside, you must know sorrow as the other deepest thing. You must wake up with sorrow. You must speak to it till your voice catches the thread of all sorrows and you see the size of the cloth. 
then it is only kindness that makes sense anymore. Only kindness that ties your shoes and sends you out into the day to mail letters and purchase bread. Only kindness that raises its head out of the crowd of the world to say, it is I you have been looking for, and then goes with you everywhere, like a shadow or a friend. There isn't really anything truly integrated into our Western culture that teaches and deepens us into living the truth of interconnectedness and the essential unsatisfactoriness and emptiness of accumulation. I think that as a culture, there's a deep, quite a profound loss in this lack. The practice, the development of the heart of generosity is a seed, the foundation of spiritual development. Generosity is the ground of love, compassion, and joy, and a requisite towards the realization of liberation. As practice develops and our discerning capacity grows, the mind, the heart, learns to see and know the ephemeral, the changing nature of all things. In relationship to our everyday world, what we think is ours today may be gone tomorrow or may seemingly belong to someone else next week. Maybe even in this retreat, my seat in the dining room, my walking path. What in this world really, really belongs to us? What can we truly possess? Is there anything that really has any hard and fast owners? Everything changes hands or just simply dissolves. When we begin to touch this truth, it can be a powerful teacher that inclines us towards cultivating our inner wealth, the inner wealth of qualities such as generosity, compassion, concentration, mindfulness, patience, loving-kindness, special and particular talents that we have, joy, equanimity. An inner wealth of generosity is a powerful medicine. It's an antidote to the anguish and the confusion that's generated through the conditioning, the training of accumulating and then fixing on and identifying with all of the material and mental accumulations. When the Chilean writer 
Isabel Allende, her daughter, her 28-year-old daughter Paula, fell ill and was in a coma for a year. Isabel took care of her until she died in December of 1992. And this is what Isabel wrote uh, about this. The pain of losing my child was a cleansing experience. I had to throw overboard all excess baggage and keep only what is essential. Because of Paula, I don't cling to anything anymore. Now I like to give much more than to receive. I'm happier when I love than when I am loved. I adore my husband, my son, my grandchildren, my mother, my dog. And frankly, I don't know if they even like me. (laughs) But who cares? Loving them is my joy. And then she goes on and says, Give, give, give. What's the point of having experience, knowledge, or talent if I don't give it away? Of having stories if I don't tell them to others? Of having wealth if I don't share it? I don't intend to be cremated with any of it. It's, it is in the giving that I connect with others, with the world, and with the divine. Generosity is a natural, healthy, awakened response to the deepening understanding that there's nothing that can be held on to. Nothing that can be held on to in this constantly changing world. Our inner wealth of generosity is a wealth that can actually never be depleted. It's a gift that can be forever given. And it's a seamless circle. It feeds itself. It grows itself. And so, from this perspective, as the Buddha tells us, the greatest gift is the act of giving. I'd like to uh, offer two short sections of the of a sutta. Uh, Devijana uh, Sutta, which is translated as the Two People Sutta. On one occasion, the Buddha was staying near Savati at Jetta's Grove in Anattapindika's monastery. Then two Brahmins, feeble old men, aged, advanced in years, having come to the last stage of life, 120 years old, went to the Blessed One. On arrival, they exchanged courteous greetings with him, and after an exchange of friendly greetings and courtesies, sat to one side. As they were sitting there, they said to him, Master Gotama, we are Brahmins, feeble old men, aged, advanced in years, having come to the last stage of life, 120 years old and we have done no admirable deeds, no skillful deeds, no deeds that allay our fears. Teach us, Master Gotama. Instruct us, Master Gotama, for our long-term benefit and happiness. 
And the Buddha responds, Indeed, Brahmins, you are feeble old men, aged, advanced in years, having come to the last stage of life, 120 years old. And you have done no admirable deeds, no skillful deeds, no deeds that allay your fears. This world is on fire with aging, illness, and death. When a house is on fire, the vessel salvaged is the one that will be of use, not the one left there to burn. So when the world is on fire with aging and death, one should salvage one's wealth by giving. What's given is well salvaged, said the Buddha. Traditionally, in the Buddhist teachings, three kinds of given, giving uh, are spoken of. There's what we could call beggarly giving, which is when we give with only one hand, so to say, still holding on to what we have or what we intend to give. It's still mine, which of how I first began to consider giving my young Chinese friend my bracelet. And in this kind of giving, we might just give the least of what we have. And then afterward, we might even wonder whether we should have given anything at all. The second kind of giving can be called friendly giving. And we give open-handedly, with both hands, so to say. We share what we have. Because it feels natural and it feels appropriate to do so. It's a, it's a clear giving. And then there is what can be called queenly or kingly giving. And this is when we give the best of what we have. Even if none remains for ourselves, we give it instinctively. We give graciously. We actually know ourselves to be only temporary caregivers of whatever has been provided. We actually know ourselves as owning nothing. And in this, there's no giving. There's just the spaciousness which allows objects and our caring heart to remain in the natural flow of life. This is really the true heart of generosity. The 8th century monk Shantideva said this, Buddhist monk Shantideva said this, Others are my main concern. When I notice something of mine, I steal it and give it to others. (laughs) There's really nothing to be held on to in this knowing of the perfectly natural, empty flow of life. In understanding the way of things, the heart of generosity quite naturally blossoms. Desmond Tutu of South Africa said this, Africans believe in something that is difficult to render in English. We call it Obuntu Boto. It means the essence of being human. You know when it's there and when it's absent. It speaks about humanness, gentleness, generosity, hospitality, 
putting yourself on the out putting yourself out on the behalf of others being vulnerable it embraces compassion and toughness it recognizes that my humanity is bound up in yours for we can only be human together and as we all well know we don't always live with this with the purity and the completeness of queenly or kingly generosity this at least in part is one of the reasons why we practice something that i think is important important to remember throughout our practice is to remember to really be honest with ourselves to honor and to respect our capacity of heart at any given point along the way and not to pretend anything not to pretend anything to ourselves or pretend anything in relationship to others by imitating or by acting out of some idealized image that we might have of a generous compassionate loving person it's important to recognize honor and respect our limits along the way and come from a genuine place of heart sometimes we might think that we're acting out of generosity or that we're acting out of unconditional kindness and compassion when in fact we're acting maybe out of a fear of loss or some fear of disapproval or fear of some degree of a harsh verbal or physical reaction or sometimes we might give from the place of trying to avoid dealing directly with a particular person or a specific situation giving in this way actually perpetuates fear and delusion it strengthens the closed heart of self-centeredness and disconnection which then in turn causes continued suffering in ourselves and maybe also in the other person and we may be creating what in modern language is called codependency rather than cultivating the truth of a healthy and vital connection to others and the unfolding of the wisdom of interconnectedness and not self that the quality of generosity very naturally springs from it may be that you don't yet have the feeling of a simple okayness about being here meaning an okayness about being alive in this life just simply because here you are alive in this life without this we can experience some degree of a pervasive and under differentiated feeling of disconnection a feeling of separateness and an inner lack if we don't yet feel the strength within us of wholeness and this simple okayness this has to be respected otherwise 
giving and sharing and caring might be done with a subtle or often unconscious sense of getting something in return. When our heart hasn't yet healed from the learned, from the conditioned feelings of lack, there certainly may be some misunderstanding in relationship to the truth of generosity. We may give ourself away. We may lose ourself in an unhealthy way, in what seems like generous support, but might actually be unskillful giving and unskillful support of others. And when this happens, we actually feel less whole. We feel more depleted. We feel weaker. Which then is often accompanied by a lack of awareness, by an ignorance of the real needs of others, along with a lack of awareness and ignorance of our own needs. It's so important to understand, respect, and honor in ourself and in others that the wisdom of a deep and true generosity develops and matures gradually. And in relationship to this, on the scale of our work in the world, Thomas Merton wrote, to allow oneself to be carried away by a multitude of conflicting concerns, to surrender to too many demands, to commit oneself to too many projects, to want to help everyone in everything, is to succumb to violence. And as a counterbalance to this, some words from Ralph Waldo Emerson. To laugh often and much, to win the respect of intelligent people and the affection of children, to earn the appreciation of honest critics and endure the betrayal of false friends, to appreciate beauty, to leave the world a bit better, whether by a healthy child, a garden patch, or a redeemed social condition to know that even one life has breathed easier because you have lived. This is to be successful. Our inclination to intuitively feel and know our wholeness, our okayness, which translates in part as experiencing our true nature on the relative level, and includes an intuitive sensing of interconnectedness and our inclination to feel and manifest the generosity and compassion that naturally springs from this are perfectly natural inclinations. And our inclination to touch and to know the freedom that's naturally inherent in deeply understanding the impermanent, 
unsatisfactory and not-self nature of all things is a perfectly natural inclination. And I think that for many of us, at least one or maybe all of these inclinations are some of the very deepest reasons why we're drawn to practice. And just very briefly looking uh, at the practice of generosity from another perspective. There's a practice that a Tibetan teacher told me about, a very basic practice for people who are extremely stingy, miserly people. People who sometimes identify themselves as being fiercely independent. This sort of person often has trouble giving even to themselves and they may not be able to ask for help or to receive help graciously if it's offered. Receiving help and gifts and praise and even love can be difficult for people like this. They may not have the open-heartedness to give or to receive with gratitude, with joy, appreciation, kindness, even if they're physically ill or distressed emotionally. So, the practice is to take something very ordinary, something one might not think of as being particularly valuable, so like a potato or maybe a turnip, and you hold it in one hand, and you pass it to the other hand, and you keep passing it back and forth from one hand to the other hand, one hand to the other hand, until it gets easy and you don't feel like a fool. (laughs) And then there are the higher practices. If one's motivated, if one's inclined to continue with the practice of generosity and relinquishment, one moves on to seemingly more valuable objects, either metaphorically or literally. And the giving then symbolically develops into letting go of, into relinquishing, into offering everything. All of the accumulations, the outer material accumulations, the inner accumulations of habits and preferences and ideas and beliefs. And one is even encouraged to relinquish what are called in the practice the secret holdings. So the practice is done in its final stage, ideally with amount of precious jewels that are symbolically offered over and over and over again to the Buddha, to the Dhamma, to the Sangha, and to all beings everywhere. Well, at one point I, I did this practice, but instead of precious jewels, rice was the offering which actually felt very appropriate. And this is really what we're doing in our practice here, without all the paraphernalia. Learning to give and learning to receive. Letting go of control and receiving what's given. Receiving each moment of our life just as it is, whether it's pleasant or unpleasant with the trust that it's just right, 
just enough for our spiritual growth to unfold from. We can give ourselves the gift of truly learning to be in the present moment with a kind and an open heart, with a clear, concentrated, mindful awareness, receiving the present moment just as it is, with gratitude, with appreciation, with humility, and with equanimity, with unconditional acceptance, we learn to apply the wise and careful attention of a focused, mindful awareness. In the midst of any exchange, any relationship, any emotional state, any sensation that moves through our body, in relationship with any task that we might be engaged in, to the experience of a breath from its birth all the way through to its death. We're learning to receive life fully, be kind, grateful, generous, knowing that this this very life is our path to the deepest ease of well-being and joy and that this is intimately connected with the development of a deep generosity of heart. Someone once asked Gandhi, a bodhisattva of our time, why do you give so much? Why do you serve all these people? And maybe surprisingly, Gandhi answered, he said, I don't give to anyone. I do it all for myself. In truth, the aim and the fruit of generosity are twofold. We give to help to free others, and we give uh, to help and to free ourselves. This is really the fullness, the seamless circle of generosity. Through our practice, the energy of it grows and flows within us and from us. And we begin to know it and live it quite naturally as who we are. I want to close the talk this evening with one more story. About, oh, 35 or so years ago, along with my interest in Buddhism, I had a Native American teacher named Wallace Black Elk. And once or twice a year, uh, he would come to the area of Michigan where I lived, uh, to teach us. And one year I invited him uh, to come and stay in my home, uh, the one that burned down that I mentioned in another talk. A small, very uh, old five-room log house out in the Michigan woods. And at that point, just one of my three sons and I were living there. The summer afternoon of Wallace's arrival came, and an old very well-used small car pulled up in the driveway. And Wallace was the first one to get out. He was uh, really quite a big man. He was about six foot three and very big boned. And he looked even larger uh, with his cowboy boots and his tall cowboy hat. And then it was kind of like one of those uh, cars in the circus that pulls up in the center ring and 
the doors open up and people just keep pouring out of it. I don't know, circuses, maybe you, you haven't ever been, but when I was a kid we used to go and the car would pull up and people would just keep pulling, pouring out of it and you'd be totally amazed at how many people could fit into such a tiny car. Well, as my son and I watched, seven people emerged from this little tiny car, Wallace's helpers and members of his family. And it turned out that there were 11 people living in our house during this 10-day period. And the thought as they all moved in was, how will we all live and sleep in this tiny house? Well, the space just seemed to expand. People were sleeping everywhere. Food arrived. People would drop by in the afternoon to meet with and listen to Wallace as he shared his earth wisdom. And at night, Wallace and his extended family led ceremonies and practices in the sweat lodge down the road uh, at the Ecology Center until about 12.30 a.m. And then at about 12.30, 1 o'clock in the morning, uh, it was time for uh, a big dinner because we weren't uh, allowed, no meals were to be taken through the afternoon and evening before the sweat lodge ceremonies. During those 10 days, I had to let go of many of my preferences and habits, how I use the various spaces of my house, my usual schedule, the rhythm of my life, food preferences and various other preferences. Wallace and one of his family members smoked cigarettes continuously in my no-smoking house. (laughs) People, as I mentioned, slept all over the place, all over the house. And the day began in the late morning because of the late-night sweat lodges. So dinner was at 1 a.m. That was our dinner time. Every afternoon the house was filled with 15 or 20 people who'd come by uh, to listen to Wallace as he shared his teachings in a very casual, conversational way. And somehow there was always enough food. We'd come back from the sweats and there'd be bowls of food at the door bowls of food left on the kitchen counter. And often a friend and I would be cooking up something at 12 or 1 in the morning for our main meal of the day. The last evening of this 10-day period, Wallace and his his friends said that they wanted to do a ceremony, a, a gratitude ceremony in our living room for my son and I. And so as we all sat together in a circle, Each one of us was asked to offer some words from our heart in relationship to our 10 days together. And then Wallace and his uh, folks, uh, people, offered uh, my son and I beautiful treasures that they had brought with them in gratitude for us sharing our space and our time and our energy with them. And then Wallace spoke and he said, If one shares from the heart, shares material possessions, there will always be enough abundance. If one shares one's space, time, and energy, it's an open-ended flow. 
There's no boundary, no frame on what's available in these areas. If one shares from the heart, it's in that that one receives everything. Simply in the giving, there's abundance. When everyone left the next day in seeing them off, my son and I stood outside watching them all get back into the old car. It was kind of like watching a movie playing backwards. Then the two of us walked back into the house, and we stood there in amazement, the seeming great expanse of our house, holding all of the people, holding all of the activity, all of that energy for all of those days. When we walked back in, the house seemed to have shrunk, shrunk back into its tiny self. And yet somehow, internally, we both felt tremendously expanded. The powerful medicine of generosity. So, ending the talk, Mary Oliver's made her way back to us again. And this poem she called Goldenrod. On roadsides, in fall fields, in rumpy bunches, saffron and orange and pale gold, in little towers soft as mash, sneeze bringers and seed bearers, full of bees and yellow beads and perfect flowerlets and orange butterflies. I don't suppose much notice comes to it except for honey and how it heartens the heart with its blank gaze. I don't suppose anything loves it except perhaps the rocky voids filled by its dumb dazzle. For myself, I was just passing by when the wind flared and the blossoms rustled and the glittering pandemonium leaned on me. I was just minding my own business when I found myself on their straw straw hillsides, citrone and butter-colored, and was happy. And why not? Are not the difficult labors of our lives full of dark hours? And what has consciousness come to anyway so far that's better than these light-filled bodies? All day on their airy backbones they toss in the wind. They bend as though it was natural and godly to bend. They rise in a stiff sweetness in the pure peace of giving away one's gold. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.